What must it be like to cope with the loss of an intimate partner after decades of life together? Shaunika Rishi Das is an Irish Catholic who converted to Hinduism. He's now the director of the Oxford Centre for Hindu Studies. Shaunika's wife, Keshava, took her own life just over four years ago after suffering from chronic fatigue syndrome and depression. What's really odd is that I've actually met and interviewed Shaunika twice before, but I haven't seen him for more than ten years. He's never spoken publicly about the loss of his wife, but he's invited me to his home to share his story with me. Hello, hello. Shaunika, what is it? Nine, ten years? Ten years. It's really good <laughs> hello, to Mark. see you. you oh, were, how are you? Uh, it's very strange that we're brought together in these circumstances. Indeed. So, Shonika, tell us a little bit about Keshava. What was she like as a person, her distinguishing characteristics? She was very warm and kind and funny, um, very intelligent, uh, very well-read. And at the same time, she was very strong-willed and determined and a strange kind of word to use these days, but earnest and very influential. She influenced a lot of people's lives, an excellent teacher, but also just a good example in everything she did. What was your kind of initial connection? Was there a kind of spark of personality attraction? Because it was, it was 27 years you were married, is that right? 27 years, yeah, and we'd been together for over a year before that. Our marriage was arranged, actually. It was up to us if we wanted to choose the arrangement, of course, but it was arranged, and um, we just accepted it as an arrangement and got on with it very well. We both know, don't we, that losing someone close to you is painful. Why are you choosing to speak to me today about this openly? Well, I don't mind speaking about it, but I think it's important that we talk about these things openly. It's not too openly. It's not something that everyone wants to talk about. You're not at a cocktail party and they say, oh, oh, my, my uh, wife committed suicide. You know, it's a, it's a killer. But the fact is a lot of people are affected by it. And they don't know what to do. And it's not that I have the answers, but by sharing experience, we can definitely help each other. There's no doubt about that. So that's a positive thing to do. When she did take her own life uh, more than four years ago now, when people asked how she died and they didn't know, were there any of those awkward sort of moments of explanation and silence? I just say that my wife passed away. And people respond to that. Very, very few people ask how. I don't have a problem saying it, but I don't, I don't volunteer it unless someone asks because um, it can make people feel very sad. When you realised what had happened and that she had taken her own life, what were your immediate feelings on that day? I was a bit disconnected. I was in freewheel. On the moment, the moment she died... A thought just came into my head. It was very powerful that Krishna is kind. And it was a very strange thought in the circumstance. <laughs> I, was, I was kind of, you know, and I, I realized this was my perspective. This is what's going to get me through this. But I didn't understand how is this relevant to this case. This doesn't look like kindness. But anyway, I took that perspective and then all kinds of other thoughts come. And, but I was, I was in freewheel. I was kind of anesthetized. And I know you could say it's shock or trauma. I don't know how to describe it uh, technically. But I was just kind of stunned by the whole thing. And friends kind of took over. It happened very late in the evening. 
It was seven o'clock in the morning till I kind of got out of the hospital and had time to think, really. And then friends had come and collected me by that stage. And they they just took over. And they were so kind just to take me in, take me home. There was no questions asked. It was just, you're doing this. And I just did. <laughs> and uh, I stayed with them for about nine days. And then everything was happening around me. And it was just kind of an automatic. So I wasn't, I kind of wasn't thinking. I was just reliving the event and reliving the preceding days. But it, it wasn't a totally negative experience because she was who she was and the the act didn't change who she was and actually within 15 hours of her taking her life three swamis uh, holy men revered kind of in hinduism rang me and they knew her as well from different parts of the world and they all more or less said the same thing that the fact that she's done this is it, this just happens sometimes but that's not who she is and krishna doesn't see her like that he looks at the full scope of her life and this full scope of many lives. And this was just a little incident that happened in a, a six-week period of degeneration, of mental instability. And that's like breaking your leg. You can't blame someone for that fact. And they were very consistent in that. And that, again, helped me fix my mind. This wasn't her. And that was very helpful in terms of gaining perspective. But this Krishna's kind thing kept on coming back and people would come up and offer me condolence and I'd just look at them and say Krishna is kind and I, I realized I have to stop saying this <laughs> it sounds really weird and I just internalized it and a few months later I went to India to put Keshva's ashes into the river Yamuna a sacred river that was sacred to both of us in Vrindavan this the birthplace of Krishna so I went into the river and did the little ceremony and some friends were there and a couple of days later, I came back to the river and I just said a little prayer to Krishna to thank him for allowing me to come and give Keshva to him. And then it struck me that I wasn't giving Keshva to him. She was already his. He gave her to me. And that was his kindness. And I had her for 27 years. And, you know, we have to give our loans back. <laughs> but that 27 years was precious and wonderful and my best friend, you know. So that really helped me from then on to fix that in my mind. Then I got it. There's a bigger picture going on. She was always his and she's gone back. And what's the difficulty with that? A lot of people affected by the suicide of a loved one do get into this cycle of, I should have seen it coming, and the signs were there. I mean, she'd had chronic fatigue syndrome and, and was suffering from depression. Was what happened still completely out of the blue? Or do you, when you look back, see signs that she was becoming very distressed and that she was at risk? Yes. I mean, there was a degeneration. She'd had chronic fatigue syndrome for 17 years, so it was quite a, a thing for both of us. But we were dealing with it. But in the last six months, she was in a, a bad state and we were seeking help for that. But in the last six weeks, she started talking about, I don't want to go on like this. And that's when I, I called the doctor and said, we need more help. We need psychiatric help because she's never spoken like this before. Um, and she wasn't making plans or anything. She was just disconsolate. But she wrote a letter to her mother and her family. She said, if anything happens to me, give this to them. 
she just felt that this wasn't going anywhere good. And both of us did when we used to talk about it. And we thought, well, what's going on here? And then it was in the last six weeks that things got actually very serious. And it was it's a big thing to call a psychiatrist for your wife. <laughs> on all kinds of levels. On one level, you're saying, I can't protect you. You know, and that, that's your commitment. <laughs> and you can't do it. Um, but you need that help. And you're saying that my wife is mad or something. That's <laughs> But as soon as she started talking like that, there was no question that that's what had to be done. And the psychiatrist came and then there was antidepressants and everything. But the fact is she didn't take them. And we didn't know that for a number of weeks. And then a couple of days before she committed suicide, she was saying to me most definitely that's what she was going to do. And that was a sea change. That was a completely different game altogether because she never spoke like that and so definitively and she rejected any offer of help from all kinds of sources spiritual and material so i got a, a psychiatric nurse in i got the psychiatrist in i begged with them to bring her into hospital they didn't necessarily see it a very intelligent woman and she ran rings around them <laughs> and she knew what she wanted to do and i i knew that at that stage i couldn't protect her but i also know that i did everything that i could do at one stage, I was 24 hours without sleep, just taking care of her. And she seemed to have all the energy in the world. You know, so it was just, at one point, I just threw my hands up. I didn't know what to do. I'd done everything that you could do. And in one sense, I'm very thankful that I had that opportunity to do everything you could do. Because, and this is the same for everyone, this was her choice. And none of us see the bigger picture. And that the biggest issue with this for me, and I think for most other people I've spoken to, is exactly that. What more could I have done? It was my fault. I didn't do enough. You know, and the mind goes there without effort. And it goes back there again and again and beats you over the head with a shoe on it. But the fact is, I know that this was her choice. This wasn't my choice. And I didn't do it. And I did do what you could do. But that's the worst about when someone passes like this. If someone just passed away, it's inevitable, it's nature, it's fate, it's go whatever you want to call it. But this is a whole different thing. Did they choose to do this in spite of me? Did they choose to do this because of me? But that's all thinking about us. And it's not thinking about them. And they made the choice for a bigger reason, for a different reason. And I know that she chose to end her suffering. I hear what you're saying about wanting to focus on her and her choice and not on yourself. But there must have been an element of rejection or was I not good enough for you to hang on for, you know? No, no, no. No, there wasn't actually, I must say. I mean, there were a lot of negative thoughts. And I went through a three-month period. Eleven months after she passed away, there was an inquest that lasted two days. It was quite an event. And I went to the inquest, and I would advise anyone never to go to the inquest because it's so clinical and it's got nothing to do with the person you knew. And after that, I got sick, and my mind started to go to dark places. I began to forget that Krishna is kind and forget our relationship and start to question everything in a very mundane, clinical kind of a way. And it was a gradual, gradual thing. And I noticed that I was going there and I thought, no, this, this isn't good. So I read her diaries, I, I read my notes and realized, no, that's not what happened. And I got myself out of it you know, just by questioning it, basically. But I can also see that 
that kind of thinking is very powerful. And it's the go-to place. It's the negative place to go to. And, and you're in a negative mood anyway. And if someone doesn't have a spiritual dimension to their life, at that stage, yes, alcohol, yes, drugs, yes, box sets all day, yes, depression, without doubt. I don't know how you can cope without being involved in a bigger picture than yourself. And you really do have to get out of yourself and understand that this is about me and it's about her and it's about everyone else. Because, you know, after she passed away and at the funeral and all that, everyone who came to offer me condolences, it was quite a phenomenon, they would say, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I should have done more. And I ended up consoling them. <laughs> Because everyone felt the same as I did, you know. Everyone goes to that place, no matter how distant you are. You always feel like, oh, if I would have just rung, if I would have just done this, I could have seen her more often or showed more concern. We all feel like that. But when people are suffering at a certain level, there's no talking to them. You know, they have to get out of the suffering. And I understood that. And I saw her suffering, and it was very difficult to bear for me to bear, and I wasn't suffering, just watching her suffering so much. And depression is a terrible thing. She was spiritual to the end, to the very, very end. She was spiritually conscious, but unable to see beyond the little world her world had shrunk to because of depression. I think it was only nine days after she died that you had to go to Ireland for a funeral because your brother's wife had died as well. Yeah. I think you've spoken a bit about the contrast between how the Irish dealt with death and what you were experiencing back here. What, what, what was that like? Well, yeah, maybe it's because I'm Irish. <laughs> Everyone was so kind to me when Keshva passed away. And friendship and kindness is so important at that time. And since that time, if anyone dies that I hear anyone dies, I make it a big point to offer condolences because sometimes we think we don't want to intrude you know, give them their space and everything like that. Quite the contrary. Every little act of the heart softens your heart. It, it soothes your heart. There's nothing you can do to get rid of the grief. That's going to pass through in its own inimitable way. But it is very soothing to know that people care. It's, it's very comforting. And everyone did that, and, and no one has the words. One of, my, one of the students at the centre came to my door and looked in and just stood there and he said, I don't know what to say. He didn't know what to say, you know. And that was enough. That was so sweet, you know. Another friend from Ireland rang me. He knew Keshva very well, a very good friend. And he said, uh, Seanica, this is a shite situation. <laughs> Again, it was so original. <laughs> what could you know? But it was from his heart, you know. It's, it's naming it as it is. It's naming it as it is, but it was comforting just to know that he, he, knew, he knew that. But when I went to Ireland, it was just very interesting that Everyone in the town knew that both of us had lost someone, even though they didn't know Keshva. And everyone came and offered condolences to both of us, you know, man, woman and child. And everyone knew what to do. And that was the distinction. When I came back to England and I was settling Keshva's affairs and, and that kind of thing, going to the banks and everything, generally I was dealing with young people. They actually didn't know how to respond to me. I said, my, my wife has passed away. I'm here to close her account or whatever. And they would just stare at me, blankly. And you, you know that in their head they're trying to figure out what to do and they just don't know what to do. And that's kind of very sad. It's not a family-oriented society anymore here, where it is in Ireland. 
and people just know how to respond to this. And funerals are big, and you can't go to a funeral here unless the person is um, a close family relative. And I was, I was to a funeral just recently where a young person of the age of 33 died. A lot of his school friends, a lot of his childhood friends couldn't go to the funeral because they weren't let out of work. And that's terrible. <laughs> it's, just, it's really bad for the family who have lost that person. It's really bad for them in terms of their grieving. It actually doesn't help productivity in the workplace. I think we've gone into a strange place in this country when it comes to understanding how to grieve, how to react to facts of life. In these four years since you lost her to suicide, if you look back, what would have been the most helpful and the least helpful interventions, actions, words from, from other people? The most helpful was just people being there. That's it, just being there in whatever capacity. You know, my friends who didn't know how to say the right words, but just by their presence said everything. That Friendship is everything. Relationship is where the solace comes from, without doubt. And to depend on those relationships and the sweetness and the love that's offered. Interestingly, what really didn't help was religion. And love and relationships for me is spirituality. Is how do you give yourself to others? But there were two people who contacted me. I mean, ever so well-meaning. These were lovely people. But and one person said, you know, she's committed suicide. This is an inauspicious act. Um, this is irreligious. So what you have to do, you have to do these rituals. And this will purify the atmosphere of the house and, and all that. And I, I do rituals myself. I'm a priest. <laughs> I know how to do these things. But our religion was kirtan, which is chanting the name of God, practicing the presence of God in your life on a daily basis. So was she a person who was connected with God? Without doubt. I, I knew her. She had a, a six-week difficulty in her life. And that, and that was it. And it was a, a sickness, an illness. And that's blameless. So there was no need to do anything like that. Is her connection with God assured? Absolutely. There's no idea that she's disconnected with God because she tripped. That wasn't my religion, what he was offering. But it was very kind of him to offer. It's just that I wasn't going to accept it as my religious path. And then another friend, um, he said, what have you done? And I said, well, I'm, I'm chanting. This is what she would have wanted and it's what I want. And then um, he said, yes, but also there's certain rituals that are very helpful. And uh, maybe you could do those as well. And I said... Um, no, not really, because, you know, I have this way. And he said, well, belt and braces, belt and braces, and like an extra insurance. And again, it was, it was actually helpful for me to think things through. And I thanked him very much because it was kind of him to offer that advice. But I realized that what he really did was clarify the fact that belt and braces means I don't believe in God. I don't believe that he's protecting me and maintaining me. I don't believe that he loves me because I have to have an insurance policy in my, you know, at the back of it. It's like signing a prenuptial agreement, you know, declaring, I don't trust you before you get married. <laughs> you know? Was there concern that taking your own life is, as you say, inauspicious or a, a wrongful act in Hinduism? Therefore, were they worried about reincarnation and karma and whether she would perhaps suffer as a consequence of what she did? Yeah, yeah, they were worried about all that kind of stuff, which, is, again, was kind of them. 
And Hinduism is a bit ambiguous about these things, as it is about most things. It is very interesting. When I was clearing the house, because I kind of rearranged everything, I found a cassette tape that was sent to me by the BBC from a broadcast I'd done about two years previous to her death, which was me talking about suicide. <laughs> I thought, oh dear, what did I say? So I listened to it. And very thankfully, I made the point that this is a human tragedy. And that's how it has to be seen in the first instance. And however else you want to see it from a pure, impure point of view or sin or salvation point of view, that's all secondary. Because you have to look at the person involved. You can't damn someone because they committed suicide because we don't know what their relationship with God is. We don't know what their trajectory is. We don't know what their journey is. We don't know what's meant to be in their lives. We think we do, but most of the time, what we think is meant to be for them is actually beneficial for us. And God's plan is always different. It sounds like you're saying that there's a terrible danger that you get left with a memory of a person of that final tragic act but that shouldn't define your memory of who they are in a way that you wouldn't want to judge a book by just the last page but that must be a danger for some people when they're affected by this it's very traumatic actually you know my mind goes back to that night (laughs) you know again and again it's just drawn to it you can't escape it if they're thinking she or he left me abandoned me etc that's very difficult If we're caught in that place and can't get out of that space, then that moment defines everything. But just in my case, it doesn't, because her life defined everything, and that moment was just a blip. It wasn't the biggest issue in her life, in that sense. The life she lived, the care she had for others, the influence she had on other people, the relationships she had, our relationship, that defines everything. And that's all positive as any marriage can be. But yeah, positive, without doubt. I realize that when you're married to someone for 27 years or 25 years or 30 years, you've lived with that person longer than you've lived with anyone on the planet. This is your partner. This is your friend. This is your confidant. This is the person who knows you best. And you do realize that. That's absolutely irreplaceable. And when I realized that when people came to offer condolences to me and they had lost a wife or a husband, their condolence they said least, and it meant more. It was just, I don't know, you couldn't grab it, you know, but it was quite profound. And I realized that from now on, I have a duty to console those who have had the same difficulty. Do you mean you've just got better at dealing with other people's losses since your wife took her own life? Yeah, I understand it much more than I did before. It's not just going over and say, oh, sorry for your troubles, you can look them straight in the eye and you understand exactly where they're at. You don't have to say it. And they get it, you know. It's it. And then you find inevitably that at a funeral or something, you end up sitting alone talking to that person. And you have a responsibility to help them. You have a responsibility to go to the funeral and do whatever you can to help. Do you think when people get, like your wife, into this very narrow space, that all empathy just disappears? Because obviously... A lot of people in these situations think, well, didn't they care enough about me to understand the impact they would have when I'm the person who's left? I have to cope with all the mess. Those thoughts must have gone through your mind. Yeah, they did, but they didn't last very long because she was suffering terribly and she wasn't thinking straight. 
her mind was very disturbed and she just wasn't thinking straight and she did think about these things actually and she used to say things you well, you'll be all right if anything happens to me and you know she would talk about these things making provision knowing that there was something very wrong happening and i would kind of go, yes 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 i'll love you all right just not to have her thinking like that etc but it's not that she didn't think like that but at the same time i understand she was suffering too much i can't expect someone to be thinking about every little detail and what's going to happen to the bank accounts all those clothes that's going to be difficult for him all the the minutiae in ireland again in my brother's house or the women of the street came in and cleared out all his wife's stuff so that he wouldn't have to do it that's just a given that that's done where i had to do all that myself and because i was caring for for so long i knew every item of clothing i knew exactly who to give it to you know and what goes to the charity shop and all that kind of stuff did she think about that no she didn't think about that i don't expect her to thought about that she was in a different place she was suffering terribly you don't go up to someone who's broken two legs and an arm and say, you know, have you thought about the fact that I have to do the washing up? <laughs> that's, uh, that's too selfish. <laughs> chanting. Obviously, you converted to Hinduism. Chanting is an important and an integral part of your life. But since her, her death, has that become particularly important and consoling for you? Yes, it has. And not only chanting, but... I'm kind of surprised how much I've taken more to spiritual life. It was a bit of a surprise because I always liked religion. I always liked spirituality. I became a priest. You know, <laughs> I lived in an ashram for 13 years, so obviously I would. But I always found certain parts of religion very boring. <laughs> you know, but I've I've taken to those things in a very natural way and a, in a very happy kind of a way. So it's really practicing the presence of God in my life has just taken over more and more. And that meditation, that God is here, present in my life, in every aspect of my life. And it's just, he's invaded more spaces because there are more spaces to invade. You end up with a lot of time on your hands. And having cared for her for so long, and this is a difficulty that people have, and it's something that I had to face, there's an immediate relief of tension. When you're caring for someone and your focus it takes a lot of energy and when they're very ill it's even more energy and all of a sudden it's released and you have tons of time on your hands and that's where you feel guilty <laughs> you, know, you feel guilty that you're so relieved but that space kind of filled up and it filled up in a very good way and I'm glad it wasn't box sets and drugs and alcohol and, and all that kind of stuff because I'm Irish I can do all that stuff but but I just veered in a different direction. And, and I think that was because of my practice to that point. But it's been very satisfying to my heart without that. Is there any particular piece of, of chanting that you associate with her or that you play or practice that, that brings her to mind? Tons. I mean, there's chanting in the house 24 hours a day by recordings. And a lot of them are recordings of kirtans that Keshwano knew very well or actually attended or something. I mean, there's one kirtan that took place on the evening of her death, the day after, you know, and for days after we would have kirtan together and the little community here, would, all her friends would gather together. So that's a very poignant and sweet kirtan, yeah. As you know, I lost my brother, Chris, to suicide. He was 46 years old. I just wonder whether you had any questions... You know, do the unconventional thing and uh, let the interviewee ask the reporter a question or two. 
Well, what happened to your brother? He was very, very depressed. We didn't know in the family, and we just got a phone call and a visit from the police from my parents' home saying he'd been found dead in a hotel in, in Edinburgh. And this was a complete shock. We had no idea that he had been depressed. No one had told us. We didn't know that he'd already had an attempt on his life. Wow. But we come from a very traditional Catholic family, and my parents really didn't want anyone to know. Mm. So we were in this bind that um, my younger brother, a GP, thought it was healthy for people to be open and express it. Mm. But my parents were saying, no, no, no. So we had like a cover story about how he died, and um, it's only recently that I've decided... My parents are both dead now, mm. and I don't feel bound by their wishes anymore. So just as you're talking about it, I think the least I owe my brother is to say he suffered from this mm. and he wasn't in a great space, but I don't want people to think he had a heart attack and just disappeared mm. because we don't get this issue out there if we don't tell the truth. No, I agree. I think you've done the right thing. I mean, I understand also in certain communities the shame and, and it's not only the Catholic community, there's many communities like that, but... We see for my parents, mm. it would have been, we weren't good enough parents, and I suppose it doesn't sound mm. like you've gone into this space, but it could have been, you know, I wasn't good enough as a husband or I failed her as a partner. Yeah. You can see how, and you said, people do take that onto themselves. Yeah, they do. I mean, when my brother-in-law came here on the day she died... He came with my other brother-in-law. He was her brother. And her father had died some years before, so this was the first close family member that I'd seen just within hours. And I remember coming to him, and the words that came out of my mouth was, I couldn't protect her. I just felt, you know, uh, from family to family, your family gave her to me, and I couldn't protect I felt so bad about it, you know. So I totally understand that. But at the same time, people get depressed and they need help. And if they take a drastic action, we have to know that this is reality. And these are things that happen. And it's an illness. And we don't have any problem if someone breaks their leg. And we don't have any problem if someone dies of cancer. And if someone has a difficulty with depression to the extent of taking their lives, we should know that that's a way that people pass away sometimes. It is the case that with depression, your world shrinks your possibilities shrink. It becomes very, very difficult to go on. There's no normal anymore. And in those cases, then it's important to recognise that that's why they died, because even their choice was compromised. They made a choice in a circumstance where they had other options and they had people who loved them around them, but they couldn't see it. And it's important to recognise that, because otherwise we won't get on top of this. We won't be able to help people be very few people in society who will have what it takes to help people, knowing that if this is where they're at, this is a distinct possibility. And I must say, un until the last few days, I didn't see it as a distinct possibility uh, with her. And all her friends were absolutely shocked. They didn't see it coming at all. And they knew she was ill and she knew she was bad at that time and worse than usual and all that kind of stuff. But they just didn't think that she would do that. When you read about this subject, when you talk to people, one thing that often comes up is that people who are in this dark space of being near to suicide are saying things like, oh, it would be better for all the people around me because I'm a burden on them, better if I'm out of the way. But what would you say to somebody who's thinking that? It's not true. It's simply not true. I understand exactly why the mind thinks like that, and we all think like that. 
But it's just not true. No one is such a burden that anyone else wants them to die. And we shouldn't die because someone else wants us to die. We die at our appointed hour. We all have things that we can do in this world. Don't do it because it's negative totally. And when someone takes their life, the knock-on effect to everyone around them is absolutely devastating. And we don't want to do that. And that, that's the biggest reason why not to do it, is if you can still think about others, then go there. Because life is about others. That's what relationships are. If, if I want to be loved, I need to learn how to love. Because I need to be able to contact someone who will reciprocate with me. It's reciprocal. So the fact that we think we're a burden on others, get up, dress up and show up. Do something for someone else. In severe depression, we can't do that. That ability is gone. That's why it's so dangerous. But if, if we can, we should do it. Do you still miss her? Does it still hurt? <laughs> well, it's just... Um, Was that the sort of uh, Jeremy <laughs> Kyle, it, it, of it, 10 it, o'clock it in the morning? It sound like that. It sound like that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't feel lonely because of my relationship with God and the wonderful friends I have. I spend more time here alone than I ever have before. But your friends aren't your partner, are they? Hopefully <laughs> your friends don't climb into bed with you and hold you at night, yeah. you know. But that's what your partner uh, did with you for 27 years, and that person isn't there. That's a big gap, you know. No, it's a big gap, and, and of course I feel sad. Hmm. It's a sadness in my life that will never go away. And that's part of life. It's an important part of our lives. Life isn't made up just of happy instances. It's made up of unhappy instances as well. And both of them go to create who we are and how we respond to life, how we can deal with life and deal with ourselves and understand what's real and what's not real. And I've understood more what's real in my life and what's, what's important to me. Of course I miss her, without doubt. But I also understand that that chapter is over. And there's mementos of her all over the house. There's a picture of her right there. Tell us about the house. I mean, this is, um, dear listener, a very special place. We've, well, we are in a, a shrine. I mean, there are candles everywhere and images. But, Seanica, tell us about the space. This is a converted cowshed with very thick stone walls and a very wide door because cows tend to be wide. And it's uh, kind of strange that a Hindu priest would live in a converted cowshed, <laughs> sacred and old as they are. Um, we had lived in, in a temple environment in an ashram for many years. And when we left the ashram, we took it with us. So we created a temple in our space. So our idea of remembering God and practicing the presence of God and, and every day is always there. Keshva had a, a little saying, making tasteful arrangements. And it was about making tasteful arrangements for the worship of God. So we have an altar, there are candles, there are lovely flowers, there are peacock feathers, very old brass little pieces of art that are to do with sacred things. We have a garden at the back, a very small garden that is extremely productive. Keshva was a plantswoman, really excellent plantswoman. She knew all the plants by their Latin names and their story. But she would pick the most fragrant roses old English roses or, or old roses, Damascus and Rosamundi and these. So we had, we still do have, because I'm a bit of a gardener myself, plants from the end of February till the end of October. And they're all offered on the altar every day. And in August, there's Janmastami, which is the birth of Krishna. 
and the altar will have 108 vases of flowers. And it's extremely fragrant in here. So it becomes a flower festival of offering flowers to God. And it's just a way of remembering God, focusing on God. So even the gardening is a focus on God, you know, whether it be in the pots or at the back. or So the, the house revolves around that. So one room, which was her bedroom, kind of turned into a gallery of Indian spiritual art. And the other room, which is my bedroom, is a library, which is theology, religion, uh, history, philosophy. Just a final one. What advice would you give to people listening to this programme who've been affected by this in terms of, you know, tips? Because there's a lot of people... No, I mean, it's like you've been... You, I've been through it, you've been through it, and these experiences are unique. There's no template. Yeah. But there is some sort of good practice and some not-so-good practice, isn't yeah. there? I don't feel overly qualified, but um, what helped me was I realised the moment it happened that this was going to be bad, that this was way beyond my experience. I didn't know how to deal with this at all. And I just had to let this happen. When something like this happens, your world stops. Nothing is relevant anymore. Your occupation or the milkman or anything, it's all irrelevant. And you really are in free will. And I realised that that was the healthiest place to be. This was not a time to make decisions. It was not a time to think things through. It was just a time to just go through it as best I could. That if emotion came, let it out. Cry liberally. Because grief is just a force of nature and it had nothing to do with me. It was an energy that was going to wash through me and hopefully wash over me. Grief and sorrow, they go the way they go. And I knew that. So I didn't know when I was going to get back to work. And everyone in the office, so I'd pop into work and everyone would just look at me and say, go home. <laughs> you know. And I'd do a few little things. And it was kind of good that I was doing a few little things. But I didn't know, when am I back? And it was after I came back from India, I knew then that this was the time to get back in the saddle. And then I came into work and someone said, it's great how you're dealing with this. Get up, dress up and show up. And I'd never heard that before. And I thought, hey, that's good. <laughs> so I, that was just my thing. Get up, dress up and show up. And whatever it will be, will be. And I just, I, when I got back in the saddle, I just got back in the saddle. I just got back to work. To do something is important. You can't just not do anything. That That's never good. But I realized that there was nothing definite to be done. There was no real responsibility you know, I had to leave it a few months. And it was two months before I really got back in the saddle. But I guess some people feel shame and therefore the bottling up temptation becomes very, very easy to understand. Bottling things up is not good. And, and I know there's certain things that set me off. Like this chest of drawers are all Keshava's writings and notes and diaries and things. I just have to open that up and start reading and... I'm gone, <laughs> you know. Well, tears. I, yeah, yeah, I'm yeah, going to get emotional. Well, yeah, yeah. yeah, so I very rarely open that, <laughs> open that chest, you know. You never know what's going to strike you and when. As I say, that sadness is always with you. I don't invite it, but I know it's there, and you just live with it. But isn't that contradictory? Because if you're saying, you know, weep liberally and let it all out, yeah. the fact that four years on you still feel that raw no, suggests I, that... It's not that I feel that raw. I just don't go down that rabbit hole. Because at the end of that rabbit hole, there's all kinds of tears. But there's no need to go down there. 
My thanks to Seanica for sharing his intensely moving story with me, Mark Dowd. If, like me, you appreciated listening to it, you might like to hear another of our podcasts, Death and Paradise, which takes a fresh look at how beliefs in the afterlife affect how we approach death. And you can hear this programme again and find other editions of Things Unseen at www.thingsunseen.co.uk.